This morning we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22. It is the final of the seven churches that we've been examining over the last couple of months. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that to the extent that the problems of this church so many years ago in Laodicea have visited our church, both our church here this morning and the church here in the 21st century, we pray that you would quicken our understanding by your spirit to know how we might repent, how we might be zealous to do that which you've called us to do and be who we are designed to be. So we do pray, Father, as we examine this text, as we examine the Word of God, that your Word would examine us, that, Father, we would be conformed into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, most of us are aware of the date June 6, 1944. Yes, for those of you who don't, there's the answer. British, United States, and Canadian troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, functionally putting an end to the World War, World War II. But we're probably not as familiar with what happened the day before, June 5th, 1944. General Eisenhower, knowing that he was sending these troops, these young men, into almost certain death. I mean, the casualty rate they knew was going to be so high in an effort to rid the world of this dark Nazism. He's talking to these young men who are about to liberate people that they had never met in this far-off land. Entering into almost certain death gave a speech. He said this, Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Now, I said a moment ago that D-Day functionally ended 
World War II, at least in, in Europe. The reason I said it that way is because it didn't end, the war really didn't end for almost another year. Even though what happened there really kind of put an end to it. And everybody's like, this war is over. It really wasn't over. There was still work to be done. It made me think of when David slew Goliath. Okay, the enemy of God's people had been destroyed, but there was still work for the armies of Israel. They weren't just to stay on the side of the hill. They were to go in now and take that which had been won. Similarly, 2,000 years ago, a death blow was dealt to death itself and the cross of Christ. But there is still work for the church to do. The victory is there, but we have been called to continue to fight in that battle. But I fear, I do fear that there is a doctrine of history a doctrine of end times, what we call eschatology, that leaves us with a speech short of Eisenhower's vigor for the quest of a full victory. We do, at some level, doubt the power of the cross. No, I say it that way because I think within orthodoxy, within Christian orthodoxy, we don't doubt the power of the cross to save. If we doubt the power of the cross to save, we're not in orthodoxy, we're in something else, we're in some other religion. But I do believe, even within orthodoxy, we doubt the power of the cross to transform. We're satisfied with not a full victory, with, with a partial victory. We, we, we have a spiritual victory, but in the material of world, we're kind of giving it over to the enemy. We take a look at what's happening, for example, in our own culture. We observe moral, political, economic, artistic, educational decay. We see this happening around us. And almost as a choir, the Western church sings this song when confronted with this reality well, after all, it is the last days. As if to surrender, as if to go, look at it, this is the way it's supposed to be. The, the, the world belongs to the devil. We should expect the devil to own it. I can't help think that, that the devil loves it when we sing that song. When we go corporately as a church, individually as people to go, yeah, defeat is imminent. It is prophetic. There will be no victory for us. The fullness of victory is something we'll find in heaven. Amen. But, but victory in history? No. That is the predominant view that you and I are dealing with in the culture in which we live. Now let's go back 70 years earlier from Eisenhower's speech. The Prince of Preachers in England, Charles Spurgeon, addressing really what was a relatively newly found pessimistic understanding of eschatology, addressing these prophetic prognosticators, Spurgeon never held back. Spurgeon, unlike so many of us today in pulpits, wasn't afraid to say what he thought. 
And he was addressing, at least in seminal form, the view that became the predominant view today in his Psalms, his exposition of Psalm 86.9, he wrote this. David was not a believer, talking about King David, in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse. Right there, he separates himself from almost every Christian that you and I will run into. And that the dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amid tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect. But we look for day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness shall trust in the Savior, shall worship thee alone, O God, and shall glorify thy name. The modern notion, now keep in mind, this was written in about 1860-something, 1864, I believe. The modern notion has greatly damped the zeal of the church for missions. And the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither consorts with prophecy, honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. Pretty strong words by Spurgeon. This morning, we conclude with part two of the outline of the Revelation. If you recall correctly, Revelation provides its own outline. The things which you've seen, chapter one. The things which are, chapters two and three. And the things which will take place after this, which is the remainder of the Revelation. This church, the church at Laodicea, was considered to be the worst church of all seven churches on this Roman postal route receiving this apocalyptic letter. They were the bottom of the barrel when it came to healthy churches. This church, I would argue, was the most ill-prepared to deal with the rest of the Revelation. You see, chapter 4 is about to happen. And let me tell you, that's where things are going to get very, very heavy. That's a whole new section. And I would argue that in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is preparing these churches for difficult times that are ahead. And this church, the church at Laodicea, was in the worst condition of all of them. Jesus would not give them the false comfort of suggesting that chapter 4 would be a time for you to be raptured out of this mess. Jesus wasn't going, look, I know it's going to get bad, but don't worry, we're going to rapture you you out of here before things get too hot. No, difficult times were coming, and they were to be prepared for those difficult times. Ministerially, pastorally, I'm kind of looking at this going, are we prepared for difficult times? Were we 18 months ago prepared for the difficult times that we're going through right now? Or are we ill-equipped? They would not hear the call to escape. They would hear a call to repent. They would hear a call to overcome. They would hear a call to fight. There may not be a church in these two chapters that mirrors today's Western Christianity as much as the church at Laodicea. Let's talk a little bit about that city, because the city relates to the way it's addressed. 
Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was known for uh, about three or four things. It was known for its banking. It was known for its clothing manufacturing. And it was known for its medical school. Those were the three things that Laodicea was famous for. And what we're going to see is Jesus using all three of those things pedagogically in terms of instruction and rebuking them. Similar to other cities that we have read about in these two chapters, this city was devastated by an earthquake. We've read about, you know, volcanoes and this and that. So this city, devastated by an earthquake, but unlike the other cities, they didn't depend on the Roman Empire to be rebuilt. They did it themselves. They were known to be a self-reliant city. They didn't need Rome. The self-reliant city created a self-reliant church. It was the spirit of the age in Laodicea, and it crept right into the church. In this short letter, we don't read of any persecution. We don't read of any false teachers. They didn't need them. This church was on life support. They were on the verge of death. And what's really sad is they didn't know it. Let's read. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So we see, as we have seen in all of the letters, a self-designation. And I think this self-designation of Christ beckons us to ask ourselves, who are we going to believe? Who will you believe? Amen, faithful, true. I mean, these are gloriously redundant words. A definition of truth. Define, you know, it's been said, truth loves a definition. We live in a culture where truth is your truth, my truth. We've got this kind of loosey-goosey view of truth. We've become like a culture of fish who have forgotten that we are in and in need of water. We're just like, oh yeah, there's water. And then it's like, we don't really need water. I can fly without the water. But this water, if you understand my metaphor of truth, is being drained, right? And we're circling the gutter. And you know what we're calling it? Progress. Is there a more appropriate verse describing the current intellectual and moral climate than the one found in Romans 122, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's one thing to be a fool and know it. It's another thing to be a fool and profess to be wise. Well, the hope for that church, the hope for any church, is to heed the truth. I mean, and Jesus said, he was the truth. We read here, that Christ, the beginning of the creation of God. That does not mean Christ was a created being. Basically, what he's appealing to is his preeminence. The one we are to believe in is the one through whom and to whom all things are created and consist. The one who made all things and the one who holds all things together 
is giving us information about ourselves. Never will we find a truer evaluation of ourselves than when we look to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to look at us. We hear about their deplorable condition with this resounding and repetitive thing that we read in these letters which, when Jesus says, I know your works. Was it true of these seven churches? Yes. Is it true of our church? Yes. He knows our works. And then we read the scathing denunciation that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Those are pretty rough words for a church to hear. Now, just, so, just for the sake of understanding the passage, there is some debate about what is meant by cold and hot. Some people view hot as fervent, you know, genuine. We might have said something like, that guy's on fire for the Lord. I think, I think it's fair. The debate is on what is meant by cold. You know, I think the predominant view is cold means antagonistic or at least indifferent to the faith. I'm just, I'm just cold to whatever you're saying. But just so you know, for the sake of understanding, cold can also mean refreshing. There were uh, near Laodicea in Heropolis, there were hot springs that were used for medicinal reasons. And also close by was Colossae, where there was nice, cool, fresh water that was very refreshing. It just so happened historically also that in Laodicea, the water they had was tepid, and it caused nausea. Well, it could be either one of those, and I'm not sure how much it matters. Maybe it matters a little bit, but I think what there's universal agreement on is what lukewarm means. No confusion about lukewarm. It's this idea of having one foot in the world and the other foot in the faith. It is a very dangerous frame of mind to think, you've, hey, I've got my religion covered. And I've got 11 categories in my life. Religion is one of them. My religion is covered. To walk through this life with that kind of amalgamation going on in our minds receives, I think, as I read the scriptures, the most scathing denunciation that we find almost anywhere in the Bible when Jesus says to a church, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This idea of expulsion. We saw it with Adam and Eve, right? Expelled from the garden. We saw it throughout the history of Israel when they would be expelled from the land. But we also have to realize that when we read Romans chapter 11, it can happen to the church. Paul, Paul kind of going, look at you people who have come to faith, you church. God has rejected them, and if you don't remain in the faith, he will reject you. We are called to persevere. We are called to overcome. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe in the perseverance of the saints. I do believe that if God saved you, that you are saved forever. If you have eternal life, that means you have life. And how long do you have it? Eternally. I think it's like a two-word argument. Eternal life. If you can lose it, it wasn't eternal. Not to get into that. Yet at the same time, I would, I, would, I would argue that the people at Laodicea, who were in fact 
the true believers, would hear the call to repent, and they'd respond. At the same time, it takes not even a generation for a church to no longer be a church. It takes not even a generation for the lampstand to be removed if the church waxes cold and decides we are not going to allow Christ to govern our church. The heart of this church's problem was a false self-evaluation. Verse 17, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is why you're going to get vomited out of the mouth of Christ. They thought they were doing fine. All is well. I mean, what can be better than to be in need of nothing? But of course, a church or a person who's in need of nothing, well, it necessarily follows that they are not in need of Christ. We have to understand that if we, if we really are, are growing in our faith, if we are flourishing, if we're moving in the right direction, we don't move in the direction of I have less of a need for Christ now than the hour I first believed. That's immaturity. That's blindness. If you're truly maturing in your faith, you come to realize you have a greater need than you ever realized you had. Your eyes are being opened more and more and more to see the glory of God, the righteousness of God, and your own sinful heart. But this church was like, we're fine. We're in need of nothing. We might consider the somewhat paradoxical words of Christ in the face of these self-satisfied Pharisees. And before I read this, you know, we've got to make sure that we're thinking first and foremost of others. This is for us to evaluate ourselves, right? We're always thinking, oh, that church, this church, those people, those people. Because this is creeping into us. It is a moment-by-moment battle to overcome this idea that I'm fully satisfied with me. And as that grows, you end up becoming a Pharisee. That's the direction that you're moving. The Phariseeism was fully orbed, full-blown self-satisfaction. Matthew 9, 11, and 12, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Well, I mean, the problem with the Pharisees were they were sick, and sick here is a metaphor for sinful, but they refused to acknowledge that they were sick. It wasn't as if they weren't, it's not as if they were healthy. They, like the Laodiceans, were like, we're fine. Perhaps you've invited someone to church. I hope you have. Have you ever invited somebody to church and they were kind of insulted that you invited them? As if there's something special wrong with them. And they say something like, look, I'm covered, man. You know what? Invite Gary. 
Gary really needs it, you know. But a, but, a, but a flourishing, vibrant, growing church is not a church that views itself in need of nothing. A person who is truly spiritual, like in the good sense, in the honest sense, does not view themselves as being in need of nothing. If your eyes are truly open, if you really can see, you see your need. But this church in Laodicea, and what we need to be careful of as a church is that we do not move in that direction. Well, the, de- the adjectives Jesus uses here, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, as I had mentioned earlier, or may very well be a reflection of what Laodicea was known to be strong for. It was a wealthy city, known for its banking, known for its clothing, known for its uh, medical school, as a matter of fact, it has been suggested, I think with some merit, that they were boasting of their success as a church and as a culture, but mainly as a church, with their willingness to engage in uh, this word I'll use and then I'll define it, syncretism. This this idea that going, the reason we're successful as a church is because we've allowed ourselves to kind of take a little bit of world, a little compromise with the world in which we live, and kind of allow our church to kind of amalgamate itself with this culture. And therefore, look how full our church is. Let me tell you, evaluating your success as a church by how full the church is and how full the coffers are has been the swan song of many a church. That church thought they were doing fine. They had plenty of money, probably no dissension or arguments within the church, And Jesus shows up, he says, I know what you're like, and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. How much are we willing to give in to the world? How much are we willing to allow our faith to kind of be tweaked by the culture in which we live? And you might go, not at all, not at all, not at all. Don't be so blind as to think that you know it when it's happening. It's insidious. It is subtle. It moves slowly. And all of a sudden, something comes out of your mouth or something shows up in your mind. And you're like going, where is that coming from? You know, at the time in Laodicea, it was little things. All you have to do is pinch a little incense to Caesar. What harm is that? You know the story, we've talked about Polycarp, right? And they're like, hey, all I should do, because they liked him. He was an older, older man, everybody liked him, but he was not willing to say, Caesar is Lord. And even the guys guarding him, they're going, hey, all I have to do, utter these words, Caesar is Lord, no big deal. Pinch a little incense, it'll take a minute. If not, you're going to get burned at the stake, come on. What's the big deal? That's all it takes, right? It's just kind of like this little chink in the armor. And you've just, all of a sudden it gets legs. And that's the warning. Laodicea, you know, there's an old saying, right? That you can't let the camel put his nose in the tent, right? You know, this, I don't know if it's a popular saying anymore. <laughs> but it's the idea that if you put, if you allow the camel to put his nose in the tent, eventually what will happen? Like the whole camel will be in the tent. In Laodicea, half the camel was in the tent. And it was beginning to stink. 
and they needed correction. Their spiritual condition was the mirror opposite of their material condition. They, they were going, if we're doing well materially, we must be doing well spiritually. No. So what kind of counsel would they receive? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus here brings to the fore of our thinking objects which in scripture have profound significance. Gold, garments, and eye salve. Gold. Gold is a biblical idiom for purification. The idea that gold is made pure by, well, the word he uses, being refined. We read in uh, Zechariah, and there is any number of passages, and I will put this third into the fire, talking about the faithful third in that context here, and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. It's this idea of kind of having your faith, as Peter will talk about, refined. This purification. And let me just point out that, I mean, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. Generally speaking, purification, refinement, is not an immediately comfortable activity. It's painful. I would argue that the most valuable things that any of us will ever learn will learn through pain. Recognizing the sovereign hand of God, even through those difficulties. Nakedness. You know, he's going, look at it. You need to, you need to wear white garments. You know, you've got, you guys, it's the garment district. And you guys are dressed so nice, but you don't realize that you are actually naked. Nakedness in scripture is like the ultimate in terms of social shame and degradation. It's this idea of kind of like being fully exposed in your shame. And I, I realized as I was looking at this and reading this that people may not feel that way in the culture in which you live. You know, people, you know, you have nudist colonies, you know, and everybody kind of seems to get used to it. But we have to recognize this. As much as I might get used to that, I mean, because maybe you have dreams. You ever had a dream where you're naked and then you dream and you're like, wow, how do I get home and what can, what can I wear? You know, these weird freaky dreams, you know, but not everybody feels that way. Some people are kind of like, yeah, I can, I'm comfortable with my own body or whatever <laughs> your thing is. But recognizing what this goes much further than that, it goes to the idea of your shame being exposed to the eyes of God. And there is no comfort. I don't care how many games you play with yourself psychologically, there is no getting over that. And Jesus is saying, you need white garments from me, and in the Bible, that's this idea of being clothed in Christ. So that when God sees us, he actually sees not us, but the righteousness of Christ by which we are covered. Finally, there is the eye salve, this idea of blindness. And you're all well aware of how the Bible so often talks about people being spiritually blind. We read in Jeremiah 521, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. So they could, they could see, but there was something deeper that they couldn't see. 
It was a spiritual blindness. And let me just encourage you at some level, you know, because when you live in a world where spiritual blindness is on the rise, the way it is in the culture in which we live, it can be very frustrating. But you've got to kind of, I just want to encourage everybody to to not be compromising, but be patient. Because the Bible uses the idea of blindness. If a blind person comes into your house and starts bumping into things, you kind of, you realize they're blind. So there's a certain level of patience that has to come with recognizing that this is kind of their condition. So, you know, it helps us not to be overly frustrated. Yet at the same time, you continue to speak to them in such a way as to hope that God will, in fact, open their eyes. Right? You don't, you don't give in to it. You're patient with it, but you don't give in to it. I think Dr. Bonson said it this way. He goes, you know, if somebody's crazy, you don't talk crazy talk to them. Right? You speak sanely to them in hopes that by the grace of God, they may begin to understand. But you don't enter into their system. You've got to stay solid. And Jesus is saying, look it, you need real ISAV. But then he says this, to buy from me. I counsel you, buy from me. Now, again, this is probably a culture where they were doing a lot of shopping, right? So he's still kind of going with this. What does it mean to buy from Jesus? I mean, is there a price tag on these items? I wonder if some of the Laodiceans were like reaching for their wallets. Like going, how much? Well, I think Isaiah helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Isaiah 55, 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right, you're kind of going, wow, that's, how do I do this? Where, where do I go with this? But we're not left, and we don't have time to get into detail here, but if you look two verses later, in verse 3 of Isaiah 51, it's explained that the, re- the way we buy it is by inclining our ears to hear and by simply coming to him. When he, he says, buy from me, and then he kind of tells us how to do it, You need to hear me, and you need to come to me. This is God. This is Christ. You see, in one sense, I'll put it this way. In one sense, we have no money to buy. I mean, it says, you who have no money, come and buy. We don't have any money at all to buy. But let me put it, and this may make some of you very uncomfortable. But in another sense, you know what the cost is? Everything. The cost is everything. Matthew 16, 24, and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In those days, if you saw somebody carrying, because we use that, oh, I got a cross to bear, and it's like a hard day we had or something, right? But in the Bible, during Bible times, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, where do you suppose they were going? Yeah, they were going to their own 
death. The cost is everything. It, there, again, there's, in Laodicea, it was an amalgamation of all sorts of things. They're like, oh, you, Lord, you got 60%. 60%. I'm shooting for seven. Jesus is saying, look at it, no. You, you need to deny yourself. Your old man, that false man, that deceptive man, that man who, man or woman, that is not really who you are, you need to dispense with that, and you need to be a new creature. And let me tell you something, those of us who are holding on to the old man for dear life, that is the ultimate folly to hold on to that old self. I can't even, I don't know if I can think of a way to illustrate it. It'd be like somebody coming up to me and go, I have a, I have a $100 billion in my account, I have a checkbook. I'm going to give you all $100 billion. Oh, I can't find a pen. And they're like, hey, can I borrow your pen? And I'm like, I don't know. It's my favorite pen. <laughs> I want to give up my pen here. That, that doesn't even satisfy the comparison of the person who's willing to give up their old life for the new life. So he, he basically, you know, the Lord is saying, I want all of you. Uh, that old man that's lying to you and lying within you and leading you down a path of darkness and destruction, by the grace of God, that man needs to be put to death. And I certainly pray that everybody who hears this, by the grace of God, has put their faith in Christ and will find that they are a new creature and actually have life, real life, eternal We are to imitate that wise man in that parable. You know, Jesus tells a very short parable where this guy comes upon a field, right, with a treasure in it. What does he do? It says he sells, what? All that he has to buy that field. I mean, it seems obvious, right? I mean, to any of us, like, you're kind of like, you're looking at a house and all of a sudden you go up into the attic and you realize that there's like big chests of gold bullion, you know, or something. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll buy this house, you know. <laughs> Seems obvious, right? That's the parable Jesus is giving. The person who's kind of going, my eyes have been opened to see the value of this field. And I'm willing to sell everything I have to get it. Well, the church was in bad condition, and the answer, corporately and individually, is to come to Christ, to incline your ear to hear, to give up the old self, and have a renewed fellowship with him. Well, as I was studying this, and even this morning as I was reading it, and I did invite a number of people to come to church today who don't normally come, I don't know if they're here, um, I was thinking, wow, this is harsh, right? I mean, this is, Laodicea is like the worst church, and so the sermon needs to kind of be consistent with how bad that church was. And I'm thinking, this may sound a little rough. But I also don't doubt that the pinch of this rebuke was something they were feeling as well. And it's almost as if Jesus stops and he pauses for just a second. And there's like this parenthetical statement in verse 19. 
in case you're thinking God is mad at me, God doesn't like me or whatever, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's like he's like, look, I'm not, I'm not saying these things to you because I hate you. I'm saying these things to you because I love you. It is an act of love for a parent to discipline a child. And as children grow older, you hope that they begin to figure that out. You know, it's, I, you know, I don't know, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I think it's wrong to hit your child in anger, you know, it's cathartic and you're kind of relieving your anger. No, I think that's a sin to kind of go, I'm, I'm so angry, I'm going to hit you. But I also think it's a sin to go, I'm uncomfortable with punishing you, therefore I'm not going to do anything at all. I mean, we've got to find out where this is going to be. And so we, we, we see from God kind of the ideal position, and that is, out of love, I will rebuke you. Out of love, I will chasten you. Out of love, I will discipline you, because there's a place I need you to get. And you and I, as parents, as people, kind of have limited wisdom and capacity to pull this off. God doesn't. I believe God is doing this with all of us until we draw our last breath. Someday when you are on that deathbed, and you're like going, why am I still here? God is still refining you. He, he is reminding you when you've got nothing left that you never had anything in the first place. And hopefully our eyes are being opened even in that very last moment to the love and the grace and the mercy of God during our most difficult moment. When Jesus is saying, look at, he goes, I'm, I'm saying this to you because I love you. So be zealous and repent. Well, this idea of, you know, being zealous and repent comes with the idea of knowing, as we read in, in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Well, I would pray that we would all have eyes to see and seek to respond appropriately with a zealous repentance. Uh, the, the word repent there in the Greek is, is, is kind of a, a singular past action where you repent. But zeal in the Greek means you keep it. You keep the zeal going. Now, I, I think, you know, we can read the Bible in such a way as to go, we should always be repenting, and we should always have zeal. But here, he's kind of going, you need to repent, and you need to continue to be zealous. That's what he's saying, at least here. We are hearing here the faithful and true witness of the one who knows all things. And he's telling us the truth about ourselves. It should be a prayer that we all have all the time. Lord, reveal to me those hurtful ways. Reveal to me things about me by your word, by your spirit. Grant me wisdom. We're, we're called to pray for wisdom and God will give it. And then when we get there, we should be excited about it. 
I have to say, I feel like wisdom is in short supply. It's almost like if you find somebody who's wise, you want to tie a bungee to them, right? And just kind of go, you know. And here we have the one who is all wise. We are to hear and we are to respond in repentance and zeal. But lest any of us think that God is merely some divine chastener, right? He's just, he's the punisher. It's almost like he goes from that, from being, you know, the parent who's punishing you, to words where we are beckoned to this great intimacy. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Probably the most popular verse in Revelation, right? As everyone knows this verse the best and probably the most misused verse maybe in the whole Bible. This is not, as is often used today, an invitation for the unbeliever to come to Christ. Now, it worked for me. That was presented to me that way, and I'm like, what's the door? The door is the door of your heart. Have you opened that door to Christ and so forth? You guys have seen the picture of Jesus knocking on the door, laying aside the the false idol thing, and there's no um, handle. There's no door handle on the outside. You ever seen that one? Yeah, so there, he's knocking on the door, but there's no handle on the outside of the door. And the whole theme of that is the only way to open the door is from the inside, and that's you. Like full-blown Arminianism right there. <laughs> I'm like, let me tell you what. If there is no handle on the outside of that door, that door's remaining closed forever. He, he has to break down that door, and I don't view it as an invasion of my privacy. <laughs> My constitutional rights notwithstanding. But this is not, just so we understand, a call for the unbeliever to come to Christ. I mean, if that happened, great. It is a call for a church, right? It's to the church at Laodicea. It is a call for a church of people who had presumably already believed in Christ to quit excluding Christ from their church. I mean, more accurately, when you talk about that door and Jesus knocking on the door, if somebody said, what is that door the door of? It'd be the door of the church. Metaphorically speaking, you know, we recognize that the church The real church isn't a building with a door. But that's the point. He's talking to a church of people who had excluded Christ from their church. It is a call from Christ for renewed fellowship. You're my people, and yet I'm not invited to your meals. I'm knocking on the door. I I want to eat with you. Now, you have to recognize in the Semitic culture at the time, this idea of eating with somebody really meant a lot. Remember earlier we read how Jesus was being criticized by the Pharisees for doing what? Eating with sinners. Right? I mean, remember Abraham provided a meal for the angel of the Lord. It's this this idea that if you sit down and break bread with them, there's some affirmation of the relationship. So it means more. It meant more then than it kind of means to most of us today. When Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door of this church, You need to open the door that we might sup together. 
I'll come in and we, we will break bread together. And there's no shortage of, well, hey, we'll, we'll do it today. I mean, the epitome of that would be the Lord's Supper itself, right? Where he's just like, we are feed, not only feeding with him, we're feeding on him. Like the ultimate in terms of intimacy and strengthening. Well, we have to ask ourselves, because this applies individually and corporately, because, you know, the church corporately is just a bunch of individuals, right, making choices and making decisions. We have to ever ask ourselves, what, what, to what extent is Christ knocking at the door of our church? What are there things where he's going, look at, you're excluding me from this or that. And, and if by the grace of God our eyes are open to see that we're doing that, are we willing to repent with zeal? And it's the job of all of us. All of us should do that. All of us should be going, you know what, Pastor Paul, I think as a church we should stop doing this or start doing that or, you know, talk to the elders, or if, if God, by the, by, by the grace of God, you have the wisdom to see things, that conversation needs to be had. And we need to always be reforming, right? What's the rally cry? Semper reformanda. Always reforming, always growing, always learning, always being aware of kind of those chinks in our armor and willing both individually and corporately to make the necessary repentance and adjustment. Finally, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there we have it again. I don't know how many times I've counted them before, how many times we read in the Revelation the call to overcome. We're in a fight. Similar to Eisenhower calling the troops, right? Courage, victory, the willingness to fight. Fight, fight, fight. And never, ever, ever give up. You get tired, you take a deep breath, and you come out for the next round. We, we need to be willing to do that because I don't know about you, I get a little tired of it. Right? But we need to rest upon the Lord who never grows weary. He never gets tired. But he's calling us to imitate him in that capacity. To sit on the throne with Christ. Just reading that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. He's like, hey, if you overcome, you're going to sit with me. Because I feel like there's part of our humanity where we're kind of going, yeah, now I'm in charge. Yeah, I get the power grab. And I, you wrestle with that. But then I realized, as I was studying this this week, that James and John had a similar disposition, right? They had mom go talk to Jesus. Hey, when you're in your kingdom, can my boys sit at your right hand and left hand? Right? And another version, another one of the Gospels has them kind of going, hey, when we get there, can you... We like to kind of be like in that number, numero dos, numero tres. And then the other, the other apostles heard about it, right? And they didn't like it. 
But, but Jesus, when he is confronted with that, in terms of this idea of the throne, you know where he brought the conversation? He's like, okay, well, will you be able to endure the cup that I am going to endure? I mean, you know what that cup, you know what that cup is, right? The cup of God's wrath, the cup of the cross, the cup of suffering. Where Jesus brought that conversation, just so there's no mistake in, in terms of us being on the throne, where Jesus brought that conversation was the idea of serving and suffering. That's what it means to be on the throne with Christ while we're still here, before he brings us to eternal glory, that we are willing to serve and suffer. We're going to finish with a quote from that passage in Mark. And we'll finish this sermon with that, and I'll just let you meditate upon it yourselves. It's in Mark 10, 42 through 45. This was in the midst of that discussion about being seated with Christ in the right and the left. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, because now they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. This, something's never changed, huh? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever wants, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would not be inclined merely to look outwardly when we hear these words of critique and rebuke, that first and foremost, Father, we would examine our own hearts, our own thinking, our own error, help us to be circumspect in that, in that way, help us to, to not walk down the road thinking we are in need of nothing but recognizing the desperate need we have for your counsel, for your wisdom, but above all things for the blood of Christ. And we pray this morning that as we go to the Lord's table, that would become manifestly clear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.